Hello! Welcome to the Robot Apocalypse edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm joined by Emily Peck of HuffPost. Hello! I'm joined by Anna Shemansky of Breaking Views. Hello! We are going to fight robots on this show. We are going to find, identify, and attack the robots that Erin Burnett was talking about on CNN uh, during the Democratic debate, and we're going to work out whether they are taking our jobs. My job as host of Slate Money is not going to be replaced by a robot, but yours, if you're in manufacturing, maybe it will be. We will talk about that. We are going to talk about little baby robots called E-minis and whether they are being controlled evilly by Donald Trump. That's an amazing story, which is probably absolutely nothing. <laughs> Spoiler alert. We're going to talk about the robots that do your taxes and why they are so expensive and why they can't be free and invisible. Because I like the idea of a free, invisible robot doing my tax. And I have a suggestion at the end of that segment for exactly who should be building the free and invisible robot to do our taxes. And I like my suggestion and I think it should be adopted Jeff Bezos, if you're listening. Um, we have a Slate Plus about D.E. Shaw becoming an activist investor, which is like a very... D.E. Shaw is a robot, basically, but he's becoming an emotional investor, so that's interesting. We have a packed episode this week, so all of that coming up on Slate Money. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Let's start with robots. Okay, let us start with robots, Felix. <laughs> when will robots replace podcast hosts? I think podcast host has to be one of the last jobs to be replaced by a robot. It's an artisanal job, and it cannot be automated. Right, guys? I mean, it can be outsourced. This is well, true. yes. <laughs> Let's talk about robots, because I think this is actually a serious point. People don't know what they're talking about when they're talking about robots. And by people, you mean Andrew Yang. Well, not just Andrew Yang, but or, but who's who was the Aaron Burnett? 
<laughs> well, lots of people. Okay. Yeah, they're, they're so. <laughs> so let's let's start let's with the, let's start with the debate news hook. What's the debate news hook? So the debate news hook is the there was a Democratic debate this week. All three thousand candidates were on the stage, and Aaron Burnett of CNN asked a question about what's going to happen when the robots take over everyone's jobs. What's your plan? Right, and, and this is and this is a standard trope that a bunch of people have bought into, and I want to say like Eric Brynjolfsson and people like that really love it mm-hmm. and the and it kind of makes a certain amount of intuitive sense that a bunch of stuff that used to be done by humans is now done by robots and this has been true for the past 200 years and if it's been true for the past 200 years why wouldn't it be true now right so she asked that she cited a stat that was like 25 percent of jobs so then she asked what's the plan and, and like it kind of was going as expected bernie said the plan is a jobs guarantee but then Andrew Yang, who's one of the 3,000 candidates running for the Democratic nomination, you know, his plan is giving everyone $1,000 a month because robots. And then he had this, like, surprising little fight with Elizabeth Warren, who said, actually, the reason manufacturing is jobs are going away has nothing to do with robots. It's all about trade, bad trade deals and bad trade policy that allow the U.S. to that ship jobs overseas, essentially. And they got to a little back and forth. And Andrew Yang started talking about like CVS checkout kiosks and how they're going to take over the world or something. What frustrated me a little bit about this debate is that, well, many things frustrated me about that debate, but is that both Elizabeth Warren and Andrew Yang are essentially right and wrong, right? Is that it, it, it wasn't as though one thing we have there certainly is no settled consensus about why we've lost many 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 manufacturing jobs we've also had manufacturing declining since about 1946 there are two issues here and and it's important to like take the big view and separate them number 1 is manufacturing employment and number 2 is just jobs in general most americans do not work in manufacturing industry and manufacturing industry has this kind of political resonance that no other employment with the possible exception of working on a farm has so people care way more about manufacturing jobs than they do about any other kind of job and it is undeniable that American manufacturing has seen significant productivity gains due to automation, which is basically what we're talking about here. That, you know, if you're a factory making a million widgets, you used to need a thousand people to make those million widgets. Now you only need a hundred people to make those million widgets. And so in that sense, all of the machines which are helping those hundred people make the widgets have taken the jobs of those 900 people. And that's a productivity gain, which is real. But Elizabeth Warren is also true that if that was the case, you wouldn't see a reduction in the number of factories. You would see like the factories getting bigger because they're more productive. And in fact, what you're seeing is the number of factories going down because she is correct. A lot of those that manufacturing has gone to China. Right. And you see um, there's like a steady decline in manufacturing jobs. If you look at the chart, I think you said 1947 or something. The charts, my hand is gesturing down, 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 (laughs) kind of like a steady decline. And then around 2000, when China entered the WTO and also around NAFTA time, there's like a sharp drop. They're actually you're mixing up two different charts. I'm now on a podcast. I'm going to talk about two different red (laughs) charts. So one chart is where they're talking about total number of people in manufacturing. Mm -hmm. And basically until 2000, that kind of like went over the place, but was reasonably stable-ish in terms of, mm-hmm. however, then in 2000, mm-hmm. and then again in like 2008, 2009, you saw significant declines. Now, 
a few things to jump out at you about that, that obviously other things were going on around 2000 and 2008, 2009. So it's complicated to kind of say what exactly was happening. Now, the other chart is the one that's showing manufacturing as a percentage of all labor. Mm -hmm. And that Mm -hmm. has been the one that's just been a very steady decline. And that is also the reason why you need to zoom back a bit. And I think this is one of the other big things. If you listen to Andrew Yang or the Robots Are Eating Our Jobs people, and we had this conversation a little bit when we had Annie Lowry talk- mm-hmm. talking about his big thing, which is universal basic income. They're not actually mostly talking about manufacturing. The thing which they always talk about is truck drivers. Yes. Like <laughs> really truck, into truck drivers. Truck drivers are to this debate what splitting the check is to like payments apps. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's the one thing that always yeah. comes up. The idea behind truck drivers, to be clear, is that eventually there will be self-driving trucks, and once trucks drive themselves, then you won't need truck drivers anymore. There is no evidence that this is true. Right, exactly. And I think this is the key when you're looking right now. And if we're thinking about policy that should be implemented right now, we actually can't find enough truck drivers. Like, we can't find enough employees for and, and just, jobs. And just like intuitively, like number one, I don't think anyone sees a future in the next like decade where there's going to be a bunch of driverless trucks driving around the freeways. But even if there are... There's going to be a human being in that truck to do things like, you know, refuel and what happens when it breaks down and blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. And like the the chances of ever being in a world where there won't be a human who is doing productive work in that truck while it is moving from A to B seems very slim to me. Although I agree with you 100 percent, although I do think this is. There is one part of this, though, where Andrew Yang has a little bit of a point. And, of course, it's that reason people kind of fetishize manufacturing jobs is because for a period of time in America, they were very well paid for people who didn't have, like, necessarily a college education. And so now, obviously, what we've seen as jobs have changed, you don't necessarily have the same opportunities you had in the past. You could think with truckers right now, you actually are paid pretty darn well to be a long haul truck driver. That might not be the case if that changes. And what we're really seeing. Well, you in- see, I, I don't know if you become like basically a self-driving truck tech then that is a higher skilled job I than, than truck I completely driver. agree, but you need more skills. And that's the issue is that we're kind of getting this, you know, bifurcated labor market where we have, we're going to need people. And even right now, we need people with a lot of skills. Then we need people who are extremely kind of low skilled. And a lot of that in the middle, which is kind of what we used to associate with the American middle class, we don't necessarily need now. And, and that is a concern. And it, it almost certainly will be a concern moving forward. I, I just think that the Andrew Yangs of the world are overstating it a bit. And, I think uh, also... Yeah. Um, I feel like I've made this argument before, but this this nostalgia for the high paid manufacturing jobs often don't overlook the role the unions played in making those jobs high paying. I mean, people went out on picket lines and went on strike and fought to have those higher wages. Yeah, and so and, and uh, as yeah, the, unions were important. And, and the other big thing, which no one ever mentions about high paid manufacturing jobs, is that almost everyone who had one of those jobs was a man. Was right. it, it was and often also that. very often white man. What's interesting about the productivity numbers, and this is ultimately what we're talking about here is productivity, is that they're kind of meh. Mm. This great technological revolution of the robots coming and doing amazing things where anecdotally we can see it all over the place and there's like no shortage of slate money advertisers who will tell you that their great robot you know, products will save you time and make you more efficient. But it doesn't really show up in the macroeconomic data. And unless and until U.S. productivity starts picking up, there's like this whole thesis is something which is sci-fi. It's something which is plausible in the future, but does not 
exist in the present. And in fact, productivity has been going, productivity growth, I should say, has been going down. And it would be awesome if productivity growth went up. It would make um, the United States more competitive. And the the point which I really wanted to make at the beginning is that it's actually incredibly hard to the point of being impossible to disentangle the robots versus the um, human beings in China and other countries who are doing reasonably skilled jobs just cheaper than Americans do it. And, you know, I was talking to a clothing manufacturer recently who was talking about how the most high-end clothing factories in the world are in China. You can't, you know, if you want to do like most clothes, you can get them manufactured just about anywhere, including the United States. But if you want super sophisticated clothes, you need to get them manufactured in China. And you think to yourself, well, that's because the Chinese have these amazing robots, which can do amazing things. And they can afford those robots because they have such more scale than anyone else. It's not that. It's that the Chinese have incredibly skilled and experienced sewers like human beings who can sew items of clothing that no one else can sew. Yeah, and I think that's what Andrew Yang was trying to say wasn't reality and what Elizabeth Warren was trying to say is reality, which is that people used to make things in the U.S., and now a lot of those things get made in China or Mexico or other places. It's automation didn't destroy those jobs. You know, no, it's free b- trade did. both of them did. I know. I'm, I, I just I, I think that I, there are just too many competing. I do think there is a real question or a real concern underlying Aaron Burnett's question. And the real concern is ultimately whatever the num- whatever the demand is for sweatshirts in the world, whether it's higher than it is now, whether it's where it is now, whether it's going down, there is going to be a finite number of sweatshirts made. And those sweatshirts are going to get made by a combination of U.S. humans, foreign humans, and robots. And, like, where do U.S. humans stand in that world? Are they well-placed or badly placed? I think also, I mean, the the age-old, the, the robots are taking our jobs, technology is taking our jobs, this is not, like, a new thing. I mean, we don't know what the future will bring and whether no, or not the robots the will literally revolution. take over. Yeah, Vox had this um, good little video where people were complaining about, you know, when the turnstiles were put in at the subways. Oh, my God, what about the ticket takers? When cement mixers were invented. Oh, my God, but we're not going to use our hands to mix the cement anymore. And it's like, um, you know, elevator. People used to open and shut the elevator doors for you. There was like stress over that. You know, car replaces horse. the number of jobs kind of holds steady. Yes, the the people who rode the horses and mixed the cement by hand lost their jobs because of technology or whatever, I don't know. And But the number of jobs in the economy stays the same. People get different jobs. Sometimes people are displaced entirely, which is what I guess Andrew Yang is worried about. But it's not really, it's probably not going to be that big of a deal, except for those people who are displaced. And the question, I guess, is for that small slice of people, like, what do you do? Like, what do you do when the Huffy factory closes and the only jobs are at Walmart while you just make the jobs at Walmart pay more money? And I think this is the standard neoliberal answer, which is basically, we, you know, we want to maximize the total number of jobs, and then to look after the people who have lost you know, who are the losers right. in, in the turmoil. But as, and, as and, 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 pointed out in his book, yeah. we never look after we, we, the losers. We've done a very right. bad job of looking after the losers. <laughs> the losers get nothing. The they losers lose. have, have, have got nothing. Yes. And in, in, this, in that sense, it doesn't, like, 
blaming trade for the fact that there are losers is kind of a bad idea because it's trade that has helped to increase the total number of jobs. Exactly. And there's also Elizabeth Warren doesn't blame trade. She blames trade policy. It's the people who make the trade deals who don't think or don't take into account what's going to happen to the right. losers. Uh, but, and, and understand in the neoliberal response is that's kind of correct. They shouldn't, like when they're, when you're designing the trade policy, you shouldn't worry too much about the losers, except for once you've decided, once you can see who the losers are, then you look after them. And that's where we've done a bad job. If you try to prevent the losers from being losers in the first place, then you also prevent the gains from trade. Yes. And it also suggests that if we hadn't enacted these trade policies, then manufacturing would have just continued exactly as it was. And I think there is very, very little evidence to suggest that that is true. Mm. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Okay, let's talk about taxes. Um, and I think we've touched on this before, but because there's a, I think it's 80 million word it's piece massive. on ProPublica. Their piece is always like 80 million words. ProPublica does not specialize in smart brevity. <laughs> <laughs> it's smart. It's just not brief. Um, but there is a very big article in ProPublica which really does attempt and largely succeed to become the definitive story of how TurboTax has completely buggered the experience of filing taxes for all of us in America. Right. It's a 20 it's basically a 20 year history of how Intuit which owns TurboTax prevented the IRS from doing any kind of like free file system. So, I mostly agree with this article, but I feel like there are a few things that so number 1. Currently, there are multiple ways that you can file your federal taxes for free, right? And that's one thing they actually even state in the article that there was the kind of system that was designed with the government and companies like TurboTax and then TurboTax designed their own free and then there were other places that designed free. So it's it seemed like there was this idea that people are just getting screwed and if TurboTax hadn't been there, then the government would have just designed this fabulous program. And maybe they would have, and that might be better, but... But that, but their point is that is exactly how every other country in the world works. If you look at literally every other, not just advanced economy, but even like, you know, developing economies, it's, you don't even need to file anything. It just what happens automatically. There's the whole idea that you need to go through an annual process of like adding up all of the income that you made over the year and deducting deductions and doing a mathematics and coming to a number and saying how much you owe and comparing it to how much you've prepaid and all of that doesn't happen in any efficient normal tax system a tax system which works well should not require that i, I completely agree with you i mean i one of the few things i agree with paul ryan about is that i think our taxes should be infinitely simpler and i think they should be like we do in every other country my issue is that this isn't because TurboTax doesn't want it to be that way. It's because so many different politicians want the tax 
code to be very complicated because it benefits them in one way or another. Like, it, it, this isn't just turbo. Tech. No, I see. It was, I, I, it was I, very this, telling yeah. to me that um, Grover Norquist is one of the big turbo he, tax he, Yeah, boosters. he loves it. Now, now, this is but true. But I think it's because Grover Norquist hates, you know, taxes, his whole thing is never pay taxes. So it's in the interest of people who don't want to raise taxes to make taxes seem extremely complicated. And TurboTax is really it's, it's doing It's a salience that. issue. Yeah. The, 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 uh, Grover Norquist has said this explicitly that he wants the tax-paying process to be as painful as possible. Right. Because if tax-paying is painful, then people don't like taxes. And if people don't like taxes, and they're gonna, then what they want to do is cut taxes. Now, cutting taxes does not make him paying taxes nope. less painful. But he's right psychologically right. that if you associate taxes with like a complete amount of pain every April, then that's going to make you more well-disposed to people and, who say taxes are bad. And Intuit, according to this ProPublica piece, basically exploits that pain, right? They have all these these dark patterns that they use to get fear, you— Fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Yes, yeah. FUD. They use FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt, to get you to pay to file your taxes. They have all these little tricks. Like, they, they do, like, a little animation of a timer, like, we are finding the best deductions for you right, right but, now, just but, to, but, like, but, increase but, but, your Yeah, but, anxiety. like, to— and they, because everyone thinks that taxes are complicated, but I just want to push back a little bit on what Anna was saying about how politicians, it's all the politicians fault because they want more complex taxes and the t- tax code is complicated. That bit, I think, is true of Grover Norquist, but basically false of politicians. It is definitely true that there are many politicians who want very specific little stupid bits of the tax code and they're pushing for like incredibly complex fiscal policy. That is true in every country in the world. That does not affect income tax. That does not affect the the individual experience of paying individual income tax is true it can be incredibly simple and easy even when the broader tax code is incredibly complex part of the reason that our tax code is so complex is because historically we've had many many different groups that want to get deductions for this or deductions for that and one of the things as i've said i didn't like the republican tax cut but i do think increasing the standard deduction so fewer people itemized and didn't have to deal with all of that i think is a good thing i think that if you look at the history of the tax code it is very hard to make the argument that it is it is not complicated because of certain interests i'm not saying but but the, my point is that the complexity of the tax code and the difficulty of filing taxes and the pain associated with filing taxes are two different things. And it is absolutely possible, even with a complicated tax code, to make filing your taxes incredibly easy and painless to the point at which you don't even realize that you're doing it. And every other country has worked this out, even ones with complicated tax codes. It's n- The problem here is not the number of deductions or the complexity of the tax code. The problem here is, I think, ProPublica has this right, that the not just TurboTax, but even the IRS has explicitly said that they think that for some reason the tax preparation industry is an important industry which should exist, and they are doing things to pro- to protect it. That's and- really the, what comes across in the piece. I mean, even both George Bush and Al Gore, George W. Bush, wanted to make free file easier and encourage the IRS to to do something about it. And 
Intuit worked its ass off, lobbied really hard to make sure that did not happen. And it seemed to have um, buy-in at the IRS. Like they, they, like Felix was saying, are really committed to keeping the tax preparation industry alive. And there's a lot of, you know, revolving door action going back and forth from the IRS to Intuit. It just seems like a whole rotten system. And then on top of that, you have an IRS that's like permanently underfunded, has recently openly admitted to auditing poor people more than rich people because it's like cheaper and easier. It just seems like the whole system is kind of rotten and Intuit was able to really leverage that to make a lot of money and have Gene Simmons come to the Intuit party. So I agree that I think that we have a very problematic tax system. I think the way we file taxes is silly. I think that it would be wonderful if we went to a far more simpler system. I think all of that is true. My issue with this particular article is just that I think it is incredibly one-sided. And I think it acts as though you have this one company that has so much power. And I think they're overstating that. Tax preparation isn't even like 50% of how Intuit makes its money. Like, I I'm not saying they didn't play a role. Oh, I just think is. their role is overstated. No, I looked at their financial statements. No, no, no. What less- I'm saying is that it, what they do is cross-selling. The, the, the TurboTax might not directly account for the profits, but TurboTax is how Intuit gets you into the Intuit ecosystem. No, you want to use QuickBooks. That's why I <laughs> I'm, No, I'm sorry. Like this, I'm just saying, I think they have, I think ProPublica is right about certain things. I just simply think they're overstating their case. But I, some of the yeah. things they found out are just... I've, no, they're gross. Don't get me wrong. I mean, suppressing free file from Google search, the dark patterns. I just want to say dark patterns over and over There are lots of dark patterns. They they are deeply evil. And then... I don't think you can say that. Yeah. And one other thing, like, just to be fair, like, don't get me wrong. I I think that a lot of the stuff they do is gross. So I'm not in any way justifying that. However, I think suggesting that there's some like if a company thinks that the government is going to put it out of business, it's not shocking that the company is going to start lobbying. It gets like that's that's not a company being evil. That's a company trying to stay in business, whether you think it should or not. Like, I just think that this idea of an evil company. Well, no, I mean, no, but let's look at what Intuit did right back in 2000. You know, they saw a massive opportunity and they lobbied hard to be able to maximize their returns on that opportunity. Whether or not Intuit ever faced a theoretical existential threat, the fact remains that their profits have been skyrocketing. It's not a case that like, oh, no, we need to prevent our profits going to zero. In fact, their profits have not been going down. Their profits have been going up. And that's the bit which galls me about this story is that they claim to fear this like existential risk, whereas in fact, there's no downward trend anywhere, and the only se- trends seem to be up. In a world of like software as a service and efficient competition and a tax code which is visible to everyone equally, the profits of the tax preparation industry should not be going up. They should be getting competed down to zero. And that isn't happening. Right. And part of the reason that isn't happening, this will be the last thing I say, mm-hmm. is part of the reason that I think the IRS does not want to put these companies out of business is because the IRS does not want to do all of this themselves. They, in fact, want someone else to do it. So that's that's why they're saying we're but not going to put them out of business. Well, no, but, but again, that's a straw man. No one's talking about putting them out of business. We're just so- talking about... That's literally what was stated. Like the, the pro-public in their piece had... PowerPoint like slides that said that the company was worried that they were going to be put no, out no, of no. I Wait, mean, like, no. and like, Anna, stop, stop. This. No, I am 100% agreeing with you that 
that is what Intuit is talking about rhetorically. They're like, if we don't fight this, then we will go out of business. But no one outside Intuit thinks that they would go out of business if there were like free options. And the fact is, there is no evidence to see them going out of business. Or what my point is that they're not, their business isn't even declining. It's not even threatening to decline. Far from going out of business, their business has been doing better and better and better. So I understand that, like, you know, them getting put out of business tomorrow would be bad for them in some like weird hypothetical world where that could happen. But that is, but my point is that we're not even close to that world and we never were. And every time the government, you know, tries, tries to do anything that might bring us a little bit closer to that world, like in 2005, when the free file system first came out, a bunch of Americans started using the free file system, like 5 million of them. And Intuit got very worried. But even in that year, its profit still went up. Even when all of these millions of people started filing for free, TurboTax still made more money. No one is going out of business here. What, so I just want to add one thing to the competition point. Like, Why is there no competition? Why is um, tax preparation not something that the private sector is competing down to zero cost? Well, the- Which, and, and, my, and my answer is that the real way to make tax preparation easier and cheaper for Americans, given the stranglehold that Intuit's lobbyists seem to have over the IRS, is, wait for it, Amazon Prime. If Amazon Prime filed your taxes for free, that would be a game changer. That's that's fair. Like, I know... Completely fair. Can I just say one last thing? And I promise I'm done. <laughs> is Stop that, promising to be done. We I know. Want you to I'm, talk, I'm totally. Anna. Is that <laughs> people want this? <laughs> if you look at Intuit's stock price, I don't really actually think it started doing much movement at all until like 2014, 2015. So I, I'm I, not talking about the stock price. I'm talking about the profits. Right. But I think all I'm saying is that from the ProPublica piece and what they stated. The IRS was saying and why the IRS was saying they wanted to keep this. They wanted to keep the system they had with into it was because they were concerned about the long term effect it would have on the company. Yeah, we agreed that. So, yeah, they so, want jobs there. Right. And they also don't want to do it themselves. So I, all I'm saying, I'm not saying that anyone thought they were going to go out of business tomorrow. I'm just saying that there is a reason that the IRS went along with the system. And I think that it's not just about like there's an evil company. I think that this is complicated. Like that's just what I'm saying. I think that a lot of this is accurate. I just think it is overstating the case. I think if Intuit didn't exist, some other Intuit would have <laughs> been probably created right. to come along and no, take I th- advantage of this situation. Well, well no, I don't. I, I think okay. I, I disagree deeply with Anna that like the IRS has a natural institutional reason to want Intuits to exist because, as I say, in every other country on planet Earth, the tax authorities don't have that incentive and and America is not that different like it works so easily everywhere else so invisibly everywhere else that it's entirely natural like there's there's this weird theme in the article of um politicians saying i just don't think that the institution that collects the taxes should also be preparing the taxes i'm saying well, of course they should be the same institution like it's the most obvious thing and and that's uniquely and weirdly American. And if and no one seems to be examining that. I'll agree with you on that. And I think that America is a bizarre place for many reasons. And I think that it's a larger story than just TurboTax. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. 
Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, now let's talk about a story we can all agree is completely bizarre. Yes. <laughs> there will be no arguments on this one. The mystery of the Trump chaos trades was a story that appeared Wednesday on night. Wednesday night on the Vanity Fair website written by William Cohen. And it is, would you say, bullshit, Felix? I, I believe I, I might have used the word bullshit. He, Felix broke it down on the in slate. And I, and I, I like soft pedaled. The problems and with that story. Basically, it is a story that tries to insinuate that people are insider trading on not only things that Trump does, but just other stuff going on. They apparently knew that Saudi oil fields were going to be bombed. Yeah. And so it has a few examples and it makes this insinuation. But even to the layperson like myself who doesn't know what or didn't know what an e-mini is, which is the things that are allegedly being insider traded, you read the story and you're like, I, okay, I don't know. It, it doesn't make sense. The story the, the, didn't the, make sense. There's a bunch sense. of stuff about this story which doesn't make sense, but there's a bunch of stuff about this story which, like, makes just enough sense for it to have completely exploded on, like, Wednesday night and into Thursday and for like it's not just a former banker. Bill Cohen is he, you know, a former banker himself, and like other former bankers, like Stephanie Rule at MSNBC, are jumping on this. And I and there's an important point to be made here before we like, and we can go into as much detail as we like about like the problems with the story. But the, the, there's an important point to be made. We just saw this week Donald Trump announce that the G7 is going to be held at Doral. Trump Durrell. Like, he's literally hosting an international summit at his personal hotel. And it, and that is that is a level of, like, self-dealing that has become, we're almost becoming accustomed to on the part of the president. The idea that the president wouldn't want to, like, insider trade his, you know, international actions is, is weird. Like, everyone believes the worst of Donald Trump for good reasons, because like he lives up to those bad expectations every day. And so it just seems plausible as a hypothesis that Trump might be inside a trade or Trump might be like giving tips to people who can then inside a trade his his actions. All right. I asked my friend Mark at Bloomberg about this and he was like, well, given the Hall of Fame grifter team in the White House, it is more plausible that they would do this than, say, like someone in the Bush administration. Right. However. There is no evidence of, that it is <laughs> well, actually happening. And also, happening. like, there are position limits. You, you can't just trade an infinite number of contracts. I'm not an expert on trading e-minis, but I know they're one of the most, if not the most, like, widely Wait, traded future. We should explain exactly what so, the so story e said, oh, what okay. e-minis are. So e-minis are the main tool that people use to trade expectations of where the stock market is going to be. 500, so right. when the stock market, you know, goes up or down, these e-minis go up or down, it's the futures market. 
there are position limits. You can't you can't hold too many of those. Most of the trades that Bill Cohen was talking about were smaller than the position limits. One of them was larger, which was a little bit of a red flag. And it's like, how can the trade be as big as he says it is? He's like, this trade made one point eight billion dollars. Mm-hmm. Is like, how can a trade be that big given the existence of these position limits? And then it turns out that he wasn't actually looking at trades. What he was looking at was total volume. Right. Um, And he kind of assumed that like one person accounted for all of the volume in a certain slice of time. And he was looking at like total volume at the end of the quarter and saying, of course, it's going to be higher. And he he assumed it was all one trade. And he assumed that people like would then unwind that trade on the other side of the event, which there's no evidence for. Like there's no evidence for any of this. Yeah. To me, it's just indicative of a, a problem I have where I think that it's completely correct that the Trump administration has just kind of one time after another engaged in all of these apparently extremely corrupt actions. So I get why people think that, you know, oh, it's anything. But I think sometimes the media will jump on things that just make absolutely no sense. And then I think that's a well, problem. I, because I don't I think know that that, if the media jumped on this. I agree. I, think I mean, that, that's one, fair. One story fair. in Vanity Fair, which but I think I Twitter agree jumped on it. That. That, that's a great. Yeah, I, I'll agree with you on that. I, I just think that it is a little bit of this Trump insanity of kind of making a huge story out of everything. No, but you see, I, I think I'm going to push back a bit on that's that. Fair. I don't think we made a huge story of it. We collectively in the media made it made a huge story of it. I think it, it trickled out a little bit to sort of talk radio and, and cable TV, but it never really became a story because a bunch of people looked at it and said, this doesn't make any sense. Where's the evidence? Who are these people who are allegedly insider trading? And, and Cohen's like, someone. And then like his, his, what was the quote in the headline? You, did you not write that? Mm-hmm. I didn't some, write the quote. There was oh, a, a hanky panky. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The headline I like needs something, something else too. Hanky panky. <laughs> and then it turns out, if you look at where that quote comes from, it's some guy who believes in the theory that Al Qaeda was front running the nine eleven attacks, which was completely debunked. And so there's there's this conspiracy theorizing going on. But the fact that the conspiracy is even plausible in the first place, the touched a nerve with a bunch of people you know in the politically minded universe that everyone's like yeah trump's insider trading and and wanted to believe that and could believe that and did believe that is indicative of the degree to which the entire you know civil society and government has become degraded because it like if it was true no one would be surprised right i mean this is just how conspiracy theories Work. They like have conspiracy a theories are normally are normally improbable, and this one seems yes. downright, you know, likely. Also, I think level. because the financial markets are so complex, and no one knows what an e mini is or understands a lot of this, it's like you think it is kind of sinister, right? And some of the examples coincides in the piece were like when Trump lied about getting a call from China. You know, I think there were two lies that allegedly he was a- allegedly able to insider trade on. It was like some. Two lies about China or something. He is 100% not capable of, like, getting his lies straight to make sure that his insider trading makes money. Yeah, that's the other thing. Like, his Doral grift is... It's right out in the open and it's obvious and easy like, oh, we're going to make a lot of they need a hotel to stay at. I could make a lot of money. Let's do my hotel. It's like very out there. But like Trump is not a global markets mastermind. No. He doesn't know what he's doing. I mean, his one thing that he used to do back in the day, he wouldn't he go and say like, oh, I'm going to invest in Pan Am or something. Yeah. This is like a classic Trump thing. This and the grift, stock price it was amazing. He, he would put out. He would he would buy stock in a company, uh-huh. put out a press release say that he saying that he was interested in buying the company. The stock 
of the company would go up and then he'd sell the stock. And he's like, this is such a great that grift. That was his grift. And he tried it like one too many times to the point at which everyone, the, the minute the press release came out, everyone was like, yeah, we no. see what game we're playing. <laughs> <laughs> but like that's the level of his sophistication and you yeah. know, market scam. I don't think he's capable of doing any of this. Maybe Steve. I think literally no one is capable. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, I mean, yeah, that's the thing. Like predicting short-term future movements in the stock market is the number one most reliable way to lose all of your yes. money. <laughs> like you can't. Like even if you knew, this is the crazy thing, right? Even if you knew exactly what Donald Trump was going to say over, you know, in the next twelve to twenty-four hours. And who he was going to say it to. And and you had like perfect advanced knowledge of that. Being able to trade that by like going long and short e-minis would be basically impossible. It's super, super hard. And, and the idea that people are making literally $2 billion bets on like what Trump is going to say in a Rose Garden impromptu press conference is like... No one has that kind of risk appetite. No, and also these Even are often... Trump doesn't know what he's going to say. Exactly, yeah. Trump doesn't know. And, and Felix, what you also mentioned in your piece, which I think was the first thing that jumped out at me, is like, these are often used for hedging. Like, it's not usually like you're just long. You know, It's usually because, specifically, as you said, because you, there is a decent amount of volatility and you're using these to try to reduce some of your risk. So most people, most people are invested... Made 1.8 billion, someone... Well, number one, exactly. Well, by like, definition, yeah. <laughs> these are two-sided trades. And yeah, and, and Cohen always implies that, like, you know, the insiders are always on the right tri- side of the trade. Like, if you look at people who've done inside trading and people who's, like, who who have trading records that the SEC has subpoenaed to prove that they were inside trading, even they lose most of – well, not most of the time. They, if, if you win on your trades, like, 60% of the time, then you can make lots of money. But even they lose 40% of the time. And Cohen doesn't seem to – you know, obviously, he can't find the losing 40% of the trades. What he did was he just looked at every time the stock market moved, he went back – to like the previous day's futures activity and look to see whether there was a, a big trade somewhere. And he said, look at that. It must have been an insider. No. Yeah. He that, didn't look at all the times when this. you had big trades where it didn't move. Exactly. You know, like, yeah. It's... Um, so, so the story doesn't really hold up to scrutiny, but the fact that, you know, Vanity Fair would publish the story is indicative of the degree to which people are willing to believe just about anything of this president. And write just about anything. Right. I mean, it just the the bar is lower than it used to be, I think, for saying wild things. I guess that's what is literally what you just said. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but it, it worth it's worth repeating. Hello, I'm Imi Harper on the slow newscast from Tortoise. I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people came here, ransacked my computer and I, I got people fractured me. I got this and that, but I'm safe and what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. Let's have a numbers round. Anna, what's your number? So my number is $902 million. That is the amount of capital that has been pulled from Ken Fisher's investment fund. Now, while this not this might not be a tremendously high percentage of his overall AUM, I still think it says something that a number of pension funds pulled their money because he made some really gross sexist comments at a conference. And 
Allegedly. Allegedly. Which no one knows what he said and no one seems to be able to quote him. But he does have a long history of making like lewd analogies. And it's something about what... Yeah, it was something about like getting client money, like being getting into a girl's pants or something like that. And and, and also his response to the backlash was just like, well, I've said stuff like this for years. (laughs) Which is true. (laughs) Which is probably true. And and, and, and like Warren Buffett is the same. Like there's a lot of like weird sexual analogies that these people these you know, ancient very billionaires yes. like to make yeah the like open kimono i hate the term yeah. open yes, kimono it's open both kimono racist and sexist worst. like yes and and they and there's been this culture of making these like sexual analogies for decades and they've been making these sexual analogies for decades and then eventually some new generation of fund managers comes along and says no you shouldn't do that and i'm offended and they go well why are you like what changed it's like well things change um this could totally ha- i mean i feel like it couldn't happen to warren buffett because he's warren buffett but on in terms of what he says it he totally said could. something a he few years a ago that was wrote about it a few yeah. years ago yeah. he, he he had a joke about like not being a lady if you're saying yes or something something like that yeah Ugh, I, wish I remember it bothering me and yeah but yeah, and but, I think I yeah, think he's, the he's big... a little bit untouchable because he's so like warm and fuzzy yeah. and coca-cola and but whatever. the big um <laughs> pension funds who have removed money which by the way i the the craziest thing of all include fidelity where you like give fidelity a bunch of your money to invest on your behalf it turns out that after giving fidelity a bunch of money to invest on your behalf fidelity just turns around and gives a chunk of that to ken fisher and you're like well why why am i even giving it to fidelity if they're just going to give it to ken fisher um but these companies i think they there's been a point that Fisher Investments, it has $112 billion under investment. And no one entirely, no one really believes that it's because it's a great fund manager. And I have spoken to Ken Fisher multiple times, and he is the first to admit that. He does not pump his returns. His marketing has never been, we gave you, we get you excess returns. We're incredibly smart investors. He has always just been about like, Sales and marketing, but mostly sales. This is bad marketing, apparently. Well, well no, it, this is bad. Well, I mean, it, well, it, this it, is was, inter- it was good until it was bad. Like, it worked until it didn't. Um, but, like, you know, a whole bunch of people who um, are competing to, you know, gain assets in the asset management space do it a certain way, which is like talking about their performance and how smart they are at investing. And Ken Fisher does it a different way, which is just finding rich people and saying, give me your money and I'll make your life easier. And he does a, a very different kind of sales technique. And and he's the first to admit that he, the way he's became a billionaire is because he's a good salesman, not because he's a good investor. And so in that sense, it's quite easy to change your mind when you're invested with him and go, oh, why am I invested with him anyway? Would you like to know my number? I would yes. love to know your number. My number is three. Three pounds. That is the weight of one roll of Charmin XL Forever Roll. The weight of a Charmin XL Forever Roll, which is a massively large <laughs> roll of toilet paper that Procter & Gamble has cooked up. And there was a whole article about it in the Wall Street Journal that I really enjoyed. It's meant to last for a month and comes with its own stand because it wouldn't fit in a regular toilet paper stand. And it's PNG's solution to apparently a very common problem, which is that people don't change the roll in their bathroom. So PNG's solution is giant toilet paper roll that almost never needs to be changed, only once a month apparently, that contains the equivalent of 36 rolls of toilet paper. And you can you can buy it, two rolls of it, with a, the dispenser, and it costs $29.97. And that is all. 
I mean, that's glorious. (laughs) And um, I did tweet about it. I tweeted a picture from the story of this massive. It's like the size of the roll is basically. I'm pretty. I'm pretty sure it would not fit in my bathroom. (laughs) Probably not, and um, maybe not smart enough to go with your smart toilet. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) I do not have a smart toilet. (laughs) I deny all knowledge of smart toilet, (laughs) even if it does have a warm seat. Um, My number is $425 million, which is uh, my favorite story of the week, is this story of Deutsche Bank, which was trying to basically securitize Helvetica. (laughs) Like, there's this company called Monotype. I want the Mez tranche. (laughs) Exactly. There's this company called Monotype, which is, you know, the 64-pound gorilla of the font world. It owns Helvetica. It owns Times New Roman. It owns, like, the biggest fonts in the world. And there's obviously some kind of crazy PE-backed buyout situation. And Deutsche Bank was like, we will organize a $425 million loan, which will be secured against your fonts. And um, and they went out into the market and tried to market it, and no one wanted to touch it. And oh, Deutsche yeah. Bank had to wind up like taking the entire thing onto its own books because like no one, no one wanted a little piece of Helvetica backed <laughs> debt, which I find so sad. Why is that? Fonts just aren't what they used to be. Well, maybe, maybe I don't know. Hmm. Maybe, maybe, <laughs> uh, I mean, font piracy is a major problem. Uh, <laughs> People just use fonts without having like the font licensing, font privacy, fonts appearing in places where like they don't have, they haven't paid the right price. Mm-hmm. When you use a when you use a font when you're putting together a you know a design piece, um, there's a very good chance that you don't actually have all of the licenses that mm. you need in order to use that font. But I do think that fonts in general are still pretty profitable. If you if you have a, if you have a successful foundry, you can make money. But monotype. You know, can't borrow five four hundred twenty-five million dollars without running into difficulty, or maybe that's just Deutsche Bank being a bad indicator. Seems more likely. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, monitor. You should have just gone to J.P. Morgan, man. <laughs> <laughs> On which fontish note, I think we will we will uh, wrap up this episode of Slate Money. We will have a Slate Plus about David Shaw's latest misadventures, and. For everyone else, thank you for listening. Thank you to Jasmine Molly for producing um, Do Keep Us Informed about everything you have questions about on Slate Money at Slate.com. And we will talk to you next week on Slate Money. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.